Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Andrew Mill, and you're listening to Sorry Button. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Andrew Mill about context, the importance of practicing what we're not good at, and smoking bans. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, Jocelyn. How are you? Hi, Catherine. I'm well. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How's your week been? Oh, it's been great. It's been great. Lots of lots of crazy hands at the bridge club. Oh my god, last night I uh did one of my preemptive bids. You know, we were non-vol against fall and it did not go well. We got a zero down four, doubled. Terrible, terrible. Down three would have been okay but it was painful and i don't think my partner appreciated my 64 was it you know the justification that's just uncanny because i had a really similar hand and and at the time i played it i thought oh this is a good one i'll tell you because it's a good board but actually i realized it was a disaster we got a good result and it was the same thing i had a 64 and i preempted in first seat three hearts but we were vol against not <laughs> So I know that Andrew, who's our guest today, would have a conniption if he saw what I did. We were volicants, not, I mean, first seat, I opened three hearts. It was a ridiculous bit. And it was only good, I realized in hindsight, because it, it we, you know, lucked into a good score. I was, we were off two, but it, my partner had all the points. And had I not bid, we would have been in four spades. 
going off even more. It was just one of those hands where the shape was peculiar. <laughs> so strangely, the three hearts off two was good, but it was a terrible preempt. <laughs> so we must have, it must have been in the water for us this week. We were both in the same camp. Yeah, I think we do have to maybe be a little bit more careful about those six fours. I mean, I think my problem was that my six card suit was just crap. And it <laughs> oh, mine was too. I oh. didn't have an honor. I was headed by the ten. Oh. oh, I had a jack. Okay, so I had a yeah. Oh. Anyway, we've had um we've had a couple of letters in the mailbag. Would you like me to read you one? Oh, please. Okay. So this letter is from John in Fertier in Turkey. It's in the south of Turkey. And it's just a, a short letter about his bridge club, but it's very sweet. So here we go. The Fertier Bridge Club has around 40 members and meets every day during the afternoon. The players are mainly retired professional Turks who, in my opinion, use the club to get out of the house as well as to play bridge. My Danish partner and I are the only two regular members who are not Turkish, though we are made to feel extremely welcome. We don't have a formal director, but the fellow who looks after the club, who prepares the hands and everything, and who incidentally is an excellent player, usually acts as the director. I think he gets his authority through the chai that he serves during the afternoon, and if you were to disagree with his determinations, you may go thirsty. But when there is a problem, which I stress is extremely rare, voices may get raised. But as my partner and I don't speak Turkish, we have no real idea what the problem is. We just keep our heads down and smile. I just thought that was just really sweet. That is adorable. That is great. Well, one of the great things about bridge is that you can go all over the world and you can just find a local bridge club and play. And I did that when I was uh, traveling in Italy. Oh, wow. Where were you? I was in Milan and I arranged in advance to play at their club and found a partner through a WhatsApp group that they had going on through the club. And it was great. I had just the most amazing time. It was like a window into, you know, the life of an Italian bridge player, an Italian bridge club and that whole scene. And it was just, it was so fun. It was very exciting. I mean, it, it, it probably didn't help my game that I couldn't understand a word that my partner was <laughs> saying to me, but it was still super fun. And, uh, and I can't wait to do something like that again. Oh yeah, no, I think that would be so much fun. If you've got a fun bridge story about travel and playing abroad or any fun story, please send it to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com and we might read it out on the show. Coming up next, our interview with Andrew Mill. Andrew Mill started playing bridge with friends at university. He is now a mainstay of the Australian bridge scene, having played for Victoria in the Commonwealth Games in an amalgamation team at the Pacific Asian Championships, and regularly representing the state at the national level. He has mentored generations of bridge champions and enthusiasts, including his sons, who are both expert players. Oh, and full disclosure, he is also our bridge teacher. We started by asking about his best and worst boards of the week. The worst hand I saw played or bid all week was the hand that Jocelyn sent me. <laughs> The 
utter incompetence? Well, it, it's it's quite typical of something that, I mean, it's very common, but people don't take context into account. They don't they don't listen to what's happening and react, and that's because most people are taught sort of rule based. And they haven't learned enough rules to cope with the 18th variation. And and so that, that that hand that you sent me was very typical of mistakes that lots of people make. So for our listeners, can you remind us? Yeah. I, well, someone opened light in third position. One which, diamond. One diamond with not a terrible hand, not even that light. Their partner then responded a spade, which they passed holding a singleton, which seems a silly option. An eye and balancing seat made a double. There was a balancing double, so it went, so the auction was a diamond passed spade, pass, pass, double. The advancer now made a penalty pass of one spade. The opener ran to two clubs, probably the bid they should have made the first time. And then that got removed back to two spades by the person with king empty to five, who just heard the penalty pass over the top of them. And not unreasonably, that got doubled and went for eight or 1100 in effectively a part score contract. The North South were going to make a part score. East West decided to organise a way for them to take themselves off for 1100 Not because they bid light in third position, not because... They passed notionally a forcing bid, but because they didn't understand what they were doing or, or where they were going, and they didn't listen to what the opponents were telling them. And that that's very, very common. It's very hard to keep aware of all the things that go on and connect all the dots on every hand. Now, if this were an inexperienced pair, then that would be sort of normal. But unfortunately, I see it happen in really quite good and expert players that they they demonstrate that they fundamentally don't understand the game that they're playing. They replicate it remarkably well on occasion, but they don't understand it. And so as a bridge teacher, my interest is in having people understand the game, not necessarily even playing it that well, but understand the bits that they're doing. And I think that just leads to a more enjoyable game. So that was... That was the worst hand I saw bid for the week. The best hand, again, because I wasn't playing, I'm only observing students playing, but I saw many instances over the week of people taking adventurous actions predicated on shape over points that I thought were all sort of on the cusp of good or bad. It's the hands in the middle, in the grey area, that are the important hands in bridge. Everyone can raise partner from one to two with a four triple three eight count and three card support for their major, right? You, you don't pat yourself on the back when that happens. But it's the hand where you're on the cusp between a whether to raise or, or pass, where, whether to raise showing six to nine or 10 to 12, whether to game force or invite, whether to make a mild slam move or just go to game. They're the interest areas of the game because that's when decisions are made. And if people pay attention to those areas, then they'll learn from their own mistakes. But if, they, if they're if just trying to follow a formula all the time, therefore they 
credit the formula for being right when they're right. They credit the formula for being wrong when they're wrong. So there's no development of judgment or, or anything else. So, yeah, so my pleasing ones are when I see people on the edge. Either way, decide to go conservative or adventurous, but but they are thinking about the game rather than just trying to plug a, plug a formula in. Do you find that there's a common principle or concept or, or situation that your students or just players that you, you know, less experienced players particularly commonly get stuck on or, or struggle to understand? Oh, by far the biggest one, and this is this goes up to expert players as well, it's uh, failing to understand that the game is a strategy game where one hand, the hand you're playing now is not relevant. The next hand you play isn't relevant. It's every hand you've played is relevant. So it's a long-term game. You don't, you can't win every hand. You can't make every decision correctly. What you're trying to do is increase your equity in the long run. And that means bidding contracts that don't make. And, and that, I guess, is the one that's hardest for students to overcome is when they play a contract and go down, they feel they've done something wrong. When in fact, they've probably done everything right. They just didn't make it because it was one of those hands that wasn't going to make. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's stepping far enough back and this is whether it's in the bidding, in the results, in your thinking, in, in almost every aspect of the game, it's stepping far enough back to see the bigger picture rather than concentrating too much on the miniature of the game. Is there a certain progression that you feel you can expect from your students as far as their learning evolution or do you find that students are also varied and it's it's not really something that you can you can categorize students maybe in buckets or does that not work that way my my experience is the students are all equally as good mostly it reflects their background the path they've taken to get to where they where i see them now if they've been taught poorly in my view then they're going to come with a whole lot of problems that, that have to be, um, they're just looking at the game, possibly from the wrong perspective. So they don't allow themselves to progress as quickly as they, as they can. So that's just a matter of knocking down a few walls and showing them what they could have seen 10 years earlier, but missed out on. And from there, once the walls are knocked down, there's no reason why they can't proceed I won't say they've wasted 10 years waiting for it to happen because but because they, they, they've increased in other areas. And and I'm not saying, that when I say badly taught, I mean from the perspective that I'm coming from in terms of trying to look at the big picture issues rather than learning the, you know, how many points do I need? You, you have to learn how to value your hand. Points have been an, an incredibly beneficial way of looking at hand evaluation. The problem is that they don't exist and people act as if they do exist. That points are an illusion. Shape is an illusion. What we're trying to do is work out how good our hand is and how to communicate that with partner. And if we overvalue our hands, we'll bid too high. If we undervalue our hands, we won't bid high enough. So 
we play hundreds, thousands of hands. You, you would think that we should be able to work that sort of thing out. You know, if we consistently bid too high, don't bid as much. If we're not bidding high enough, bid more. As long as you appreciate that bidding and going off isn't, isn't the enemy. Maximising your score is what you're trying to do, and that means attracting large bonuses, not worrying about small losses in the long run. And yesterday in the lesson, you said something. I'm trying to remember, Jocelyn, maybe you can help me. I think you referred to like, it was, I think, a double or a convention. You were talking, you said something about Gazilli. I think you were talking about Crash and all the different possible oh, ways of opening with a two-suitor. I was pointing out that in the 70s, there was a, a huge popularity for multi-twos. Let me give you a very brief potted history. Right. Go back to 1950s. When you opened two, it was because you were too strong to open one. So if you were too strong to open one club, you opened two clubs. If you're too strong to open one heart, you opened two hearts. So basically everyone played strong twos. It's in my Goran book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we don't we go back further than the 50s, but <laughs> up until then. Now, in the 60s, and, and most, most language change is driven by what the experts experiment with, the bits at work stay and eventually filter down to the better players, then the intermediate players, then the novice players. And once the novice players are doing it, then the teachers teach the beginners to do it because they're going to be playing with the novice players when they when they learn. So the leading players were opening hands that weren't good enough to open the bidding. Ace, queen, jack, six, and not much else. And these hands all acted like opening hands under the right conditions, when partner had a fit. But when there were total misfits, they were disastrous. Now, again, the value of not missing out on game bonuses meant that, that the good players persisted with opening these hands that would just weren't opening hands but were very close to opening hands until they worked out that if they actually dedicated a bid to them, that they could have the best of both worlds. They, they could not only open their one-level hands, but they could open at the two-level with these almost. Of course, that created a problem. So the first multi-two was a two-club bid, where it was a strong two in clubs, strong two in diamonds, a strong two in hearts, or a strong two in spades. We just lumped all the strong bids into one bid. No one called it a multi-two clubs, but that's effectively what it was. Okay, so then for 10 years, 15 years, People play two clubs as strong and all the other bits as weak. And then the experts with two five-card suits ran into the same problem. They had two five-card suits that wasn't an opening hand, but under some circumstances would act like an opening hand, so they started opening. And when they found a fit, the hand was like an opening hand and worked quite well, and when they didn't find a fit, they got into trouble. And so what they decided was, well, same thing they did with the, with the weak twos. They said, okay... Why don't we shove all the weak twos into one bit as we did to all the strong twos? We'll open two diamonds with all the weak twos, and that will leave us two hearts, two spades, and two no trumps to be two suited hands. And that's when the proliferation of two suited opening bits came from, whether it was color rank shape, color rank odd, whether it was myxmatosis twos or tiger twos, or there's hundreds of them around. Now, they were popular for well over 10 years. And then they gradually, people started going back to weak twos because the frequency of the two suited openings just weren't coming up enough. And people were finding that the 
inability to preempt after a multi two was costing them. That if I have to open two diamonds with all my weak twos, but at the other table they've opened two hearts that got a four heart bit from their partner, then my teammates have been talked out of their four spade contract, but I didn't stop my opponents from doing it because I couldn't jump to four hearts until I found out the partner had a week two in hearts, which took an extra round of bidding, by mm. which time they'd already found their fit. Mm. And were those popular all over the world in, in Australia as well as US yep, yep. and, and e- even Even to the extent that when the forcing pass languages started coming out and all the countries now started regulating against languages instead of encouraging language development, they started saying, no, no, it's just too complicated. We need to protect our players. In the most draconian of those regulations, let's say somewhere like the US, even then they said, no, we, you have to have an anchor suit for every bid you make, except two diamonds, of course, because we all play multi-two diamonds. That's, Which that's is normal. flattery. That's right? normal, Bridge. No, no, no. Flattery has anchor suits. Flattery is five hearts, four spades. I see what you're saying. Okay. But, but the idea of opening two diamonds and of have, not having a specific suit means that it's not anchored. I see. Okay. Got it. So they, out, they outlawed all non-anchored two openings. So you can open two diamonds as a week two in either major, but you couldn't open two clubs as a week two in either major or two hearts as a week two in either major. Not that, you, that either of those would be very sensible anyway, but there were lots of different two opening bids. Only one of them was allowed to stay allowable, and that was the one that the top players in the countries that were outlawing the games preferred to play. Obviously, there's um there's the historical record of where certain bids or styles or conventions come from, but it, you've played all over the world. What are some of the cultural differences that you've noticed about the different ways that the games play? Well, most of the people you meet travelling around the world playing are people who travel around the world playing, and therefore, because they're influencing each other, they tend to be of a like mind about everything. So the top American players don't exhibit the ACBL rhetoric necessarily, nor do the top Polish or or Egyptian or British players reflect what their governing bodies are doing. It's like the global elite of bridge. They're their own culture. <laughs> yeah. I don't think elite's the right word. They they currently rest on top before sinking into obscurity as as all bridge players do eventually. Or when <laughs> someone else floats to the top, you know? Sure. But just generally speaking, like, you know, would you say um, Americans are more disciplined? Um, Australians tend to be a little bit more intuitive. Is that, Would you make any of those distinctions generally or not, not really? No, not really. I do think the European style, not Australian or New Zealand, but the, but the European style has certainly been much more laissez-faire over, over that journey, over my journey. The Americans are incredibly innovative in the 60s and stuff like that. And and individual American players are incredibly creative and innovative as well. Most of the ones I've met have been anyway. So I'm not I'm not talking about the top players at all. Who do you admire? Who do I over the journey, far too many. P.O. Sunderland was was the first person I was unbelievably impressed with. What was it about him? I was on a bridge tour in Morocco. Oh, would have been in the early 70s. 
No, it wouldn't. It would be the late 70s. And there were a lot of lot of top-line players there playing professionally on the tour. And at the end of the afternoon or evening's play, people would get together for a drink and they would all argue about hands. I was a young young player that no, that you know, I just sat, sat there and listened, basically, mainly in awe. But they would all argue and then P.O. Sunderland wouldn't say anything. And then as soon as he opened his mouth, he would utter one sentence and that solved the problem for everyone. There was no more argument. They moved on to the next hand. He basically made a definitive statement that everyone said, yeah, of course. <laughs> There's no more to talk about that hand and move on. Wow. Tor Helmuth is very impressive. Of course, the, Ita- the Italian team of the 60s, so the, you know, the Grozzo, Belladonna, Fouquet, Avarelli, uh, I only ever got to meet them when they were elderly, but they were still pretty impressive. And I, don't, I haven't seen cans played like that, apart from our own, um, Australia's own Tim Sherish, of course, who was a world-class player. So they're, they're the people I've been most impressed with, as well as a whole lot of the young young people today. The, the standard is just going up and up and up all the time. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you learned to play when you were at university. Did you take to it immediately? Like, did, when did you know? There's one thing to learn a game, to muck around with a game. But when did you, you know that you were made for each other? Well, I didn't know I was made for bridge. I knew bridge was made for me. I was incredibly lucky in one sense in that we played for two years at university before we knew anything about the game at all. There was no such thing as language because we didn't know any. We didn't know bridge clubs existed, so there was no outside influence. We had half a dozen of us who played on a regular basis, and by regular I mean every day. Um, (laughs) All night. And all night. (laughs) 
But we were just dragging ourselves up by our, our own bootstraps. We weren't very good at all. In fact, hopeless. But when we got, when we found out there were bridge clubs and that they, someone would actually provide people for us to play against, which was quite an exciting discovery, I must admit, and we got involved in that, we realised these people used bits that meant something rather than the seat of the pants. But, but see, we'd already found all the problems of not having a language. So the language was a solution to a problem we'd already experienced. Unfortunately, when most people learn to play bridge, we teach them to solve a problem that they don't have yet. Sort of top down. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's completely the wrong way around in terms of helping the person learn to play bridge. But yeah. just going back to your connection with the game, when did you know? I think it was the first time I went up and played an Australian Junior Championship, which would have been about two, three years in from from learning. And we thought we were pretty, pretty good. And we went up and there were 40. In those days, juniors were under 30, not under 25 as they are now. And we went up there and we got shellacked by every single team in it. In those days, the victory point scale went to minus five. So you could actually go minus on a round. You didn't stop at zero. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think we had any match that didn't have a minus in front of it. Maybe we got one and we went out and celebrated that night <laughs> that we'd managed to get zero in a match rather than going negative. Now, it was watching these people that, that suddenly I realised bridge was a completely different game to what I thought it was and that they opened my eyes to what you could do in the bidding and in the card play and then I started reading. So it's really from about that first experience of a national event that that was where my journey in bridge started. Very soon after that gave up uni and focused on bridge full time, I was lucky enough to get a job in the local bridge club as a spare partner the first game I ever had as a spare partner, my partner opened two clubs and I passed. Uh, they, they said, how can you pass two clubs? I said, well, I didn't have a good hand. Um, <laughs> within, within six months of that, I was, um, I was running supervised play. And the biggest, the biggest advantage for me was having to help people to learn how to bid. I had to understand what the bid spent, so I had to sort of break all the bidding apart take it apart, look at it, clean it, and put it back together again. And in doing that, I discovered that the language as it was played then actually wasn't very good anyway, and there were much better ways of doing things. So basically, I was forced into understanding the language in order to explain it to other people. And I think anyone who has to explain something to someone else gets a better understanding of what they're doing. It doesn't have to be in bridge. It's in anything. No. Absolutely. Uh, so... So that was a huge benefit for me personally, is, was teaching other people when I didn't understand it myself, or I, I couldn't teach other people if I didn't understand it myself. So I was forced to break it down. And that made me challenge a whole lot of the things that were conventional wisdom in the bidding in those days. So what I came up with was more like a two over one system than it was the standard American that's being taught in the, it wasn't two over one. And it didn't go anywhere near as far as two over one has evolved into, but certainly a lot of the ideas there have been part of my understanding of what's better to do in the game for a long time. Hmm. Am I correct in understanding that or in, in assuming that 
when you started playing at the club after having played with your uni mates for all that time, your play of the cards, your declarer play especially, would have been quite good relative to Above the average bidding. compared to the compared to the um but mind you the, the the I guess it's true in most countries, but the level of play at the club level is quite different to like national or international level card players. So there's most people there are playing for fun. They're not going to spend hours and hours. They they don't read books on it. They play. If they had time to read a book, that'd be it. They they could have played three sessions in that time. So unless you're it's a really serious hobby, you're not going to go and put it that at those extra yards. So yeah, there was certainly card play we weren't being challenged by the other people in the club. We could hold our own in that area, but in the bidding, they would run, run rings around us for a very short period of time. And, and unfortunately, that's what happens, isn't it? You, if you start playing in a club, your grandmother taught you, you start playing, you like the game, you play for 20 years, but what you're actually playing is the language your grandmother played learned 30 years before that. Bridge clubs like golf clubs and churches evolve very, very slowly. Attitudes don't change very quickly. And uh, to be fair, we were made incredibly welcome in that bridge club uh, because you've got half a dozen long-haired university students. (laughs) And yet they were nice. (laughs) And and we're going into what was a sort of blue rent set, average age 65. Pearls, tea. One of my first students in that was a lady, Fletcher Jones. After 10 lessons, she came up and said, well, at least I learned how to make my own coffee. <laughs> she, she, she'd she never had to make a cup of coffee for herself before then. We... <laughs> but not much bridge. Oh, I love it. That was in my early days. I think I would have taught her better nowadays. But uh... <laughs> You would have had an espresso machine. Well, that's right. The coffee would have been even better as well. Um, I just wanted to um, ask you, Andrew, you clearly have many strengths. I wonder what you think of as your weaknesses in the game. As a player, I don't change my mind in the face of evidence that I should. Can you think of an example? I know it's putting you on the spot. Well, it's just in general. What happens is I will decide to play a hand a particular way and then I'll receive information along the way that that way of playing the hand can't possibly succeed. But I will stubbornly persevere with playing that hand despite the fact that I would have had the ability to stop and and follow plan B. Or I don't recognise the symptoms that my plan is faulty until it's too late when I could have realised it earlier. So I do get a little bit stubborn, both in defence and declare a play, and I'm, I'm not as flexible. This came about, I think, because in the early days, I would doubt myself I'd change my mind too easily and then found that had I stuck to my original instincts, that I would have been fine. But changing my mind was the, was the mistake that I'd made. And I suspect in the early days, I had more examples of that, that overthinking the problem didn't lead to a better result. It led to a worse result. Therefore, I steeled myself not to change my mind. And that's certainly a flaw. I think my defense is not as good. It's, it constantly needs work. 
that's certainly true of opening leads, but I've, I've put opening leads in the too hard basket in general anyway. So if I can get off lead without having given three tricks away, I normally count that as a success. But I guess what, what your weaknesses are, are are everything that aren't your strengths. So to be slightly more positive, my strengths when I'm declaring are that I understand or I think that I understand the position that I have to get to to make the contract in that I see I see the last five card ending. This is probably because I'm unbelievably lazy. Rather than analyse the hand from 13 cards, it's much, much easier to work out what to do when you've only got five cards in each hand. And so I seem to be able to work out what ending I need to get to and how to achieve that to take all the other things out of the equation. So I guess the end game is my strength and therefore everything that doesn't involve the end game, correspondingly my weaknesses in various degrees. But everyone has their strengths. My When I taught my parents, my mother, who was an English teacher at the time, but a phys ed teacher who'd had to learn become an English teacher, and she was fascinated with the language. My father couldn't care less what the bidding meant. He was fascinated by the card play. So he read book after book on card play and got really quite good at it in, from a you know, novice point of view. My mother, on the other hand, did the opposite, but did the same with the, with the um, bidding. And when they played together, if my mother made the bidding decisions and my father had to play the hand, you would think they're actually quite good. However, if my father had to make the bidding decisions and my mother played the hand, you would, you would believe that they'd never played the game before at any <laughs> stage. And that's just typically, that's just an, an expansion of what everyone goes through. That again, you, you practice what you're good at. You don't practice what you're bad at. So my strength has been in positions. So I would, I would go through books on card play and getting down to the right end positions. Books on opening leads, not so much. Well, I was wondering if you had a particular memory that you could share of the funniest experience you've ever had playing bridge. Yeah. All right. I was playing in a youth national championships in Canberra with one of my oldest friends and then bridge partner, another Andrew. He was playing, I was dummy and he was playing in a slam contract. Unfortunately, he was missing the ace and king of trumps. Oops. <laughs> and he did not have an 11 card fit. We did have a nine card fit. He started playing the hand. And eventually, they, the trumps were actually divided three to the king and singleton ace. And he got to a position where he let a card, the three to the king roughed and got over roughed by dummy, at which stage the hand with the ace, who knew his partner had the king, made a defensive claim and said, one off, we'll take the ace and king of trumps. And I, as dummy, called the director, which I shouldn't have done, and I pointed out, but if the person with the ace knew his partner had the king, but not vice versa. So I said, it was completely possible that, that if this guy roughed one more time, that the ace and king could arguably fall in the same, on the same trick. And, and the director looked at the hands and said, yeah, that was fine. So I basically said, if, if, if my partner leads another diamond, we could make this contract. And the, Director said yes, and the, the guy with the double king said, yeah, yeah, that could happen because I didn't know partner had the ace. So we've scored it up as slam making. 
and my partner rushed out of the room. So I went downstairs and he was lying on his back, treadling around in a circle with his feet on the carpet. I don't know if you can picture that. He's just going he's around. On, he's lying he's on the lying carpet. lying on his back, spinning in a circle, pedaling his feet round and round. And um, I said, what's going on? And he said, I didn't have another diamond. <laughs> so these are supposedly experienced players. We're playing in the final of the youth, right? So... Three of us, the director, two defenders and myself, negotiated the slam-making on a missed defence based on the premise that my partner could shorten one of their hands trumps. Didn't have another diamond, so it couldn't have happened. <laughs> That's great. So we shared a few laughs over that. Did he ever recover? Well, we had to go back in and give them, we had to go back in and correct the score to slam going yeah. off. Sure. Oh, very yes. good. Very good. The other, the other one on a similar thing was a guy called Bobby Richmond who died. He's an American who moved to Australia. Very, very good card player. And he was playing in the juniors one year. And he led a diamond and trumped it. And then his opponents were being a bit narky over how long he was taking. So he led another diamond and trumped it. And then he went into the tank and he led another diamond and trumped it. So he'd led from his own hand three times in a row. In a row, even though he trumped he it. He led a diamond and trumped it. And he just kept doing and it. And he led a diamond and trumped it. And then he let Not it other, and There were no other rounds. There was no other no tricks other in between. Tricks. Oh, my God. At which stage she started giggling and, and all the rest of it. And the opponents called the director because he was taking so long. And the director said, come on, you've got to play a card. He said, I can't. I don't have any more diamonds. <laughs> so, it's always the diamond. <laughs> on these two occasions, it was diamonds. That's very funny. What about the funniest place you've ever played? Have you ever played anywhere peculiar or just like an unexpected game? Uh, I played in Morocco, in the Moroccan Open, where it was the Moroccan Bridge and Golf Festival. So uh, my partner and I won a, a plate for best mixed pair in one of the events or something. It's like a, a ribbon for p participation rather than a, a, a good result. Uh, but it was a Bridge cards around a golf player on a silver tray. So that was an interesting place to play. <laughs> the first day of this event, it was due to take place at 7.30 in the evening. At 7.30, three of the local players and one of the directors hadn't arrived yet, so they delayed the start of the play. Uh, 8.30 came and went. At 9.30, they announced that it was almost going to start. At 10 o'clock, they took everyone out for dinner, the whole field. <laughs> we started playing at 1.30 in the morning. The first session of the Moroccan Open started at 1.30 in the morning and finished at 4 o'clock in the morning because the local wow. players had eventually turned up, as had the local director. <laughs> they had other things to do. Well, that's right. And they were important <laughs> people. So they knew the game wasn't going to start without them. That's great. That's great. That's hilarious. And that, that applied the, the following week. We're in the, a tournament called the Cine del Duca in Paris. And the same thing. At uh, starting time, the gates on the palace where it was being held were still padlocked shut. And only international players were hanging around. About an hour later, the first French player rolled up. Half an hour after that, they opened the gates and people walked in. <laughs> and, and, and once they started, they ran it unbelievably efficiently. But it was in a... It was in a palace overlooking the Eiffel Tower, so it's just an amazing venue 
to play bridge. Although in those days, there were no smoking regulations. And when you arrived in, there was no ventilation. And the tournament was sponsored by, I think, Rothmans or something like that. So (laughs) there was a packet of cigarettes on the table for for, for each player. In those days, I smoked a pipe and I had to go up three flights to get enough oxygen to inhale my pipe. (laughs) <laughs> she couldn't, That's great. couldn't breathe. So the the uh, smoking regulations have made quite a big difference over the years. So Andrew, we we were wondering if you could tell us what's the best bridge advice or tip you've ever been given. It's not advice, but I had a friend of mine who was a very good bridge player uh, who died several years ago now. And he gave me a card combination of Ace King seven five, for instance, opposite Queen Jack ten four as a trump suit. And he said, How do you play it? In a vacuum? In a vacuum. Without knowing do you need to cross rough? Do you need to No. You're gonna draw trumps. It seems like you can't lose. Right. Let's say well, let's say it's not a trump suit. Let's say it's a suit in no trumps. Okay. Which was actually the example he gave me. Okay. So that's your suit. It's in no trumps. And he says, how do you play it? Well, where do you want to end up? Doesn't matter. There's a reason. That's right. There could be five, zero. The... No. No? Suit breaks three, two. <laughs> this is something to do with where you, with who discards first and where you don't want them to reveal something to their partner. Absolutely correct. That made me think about something that I'd never thought of before. This, this again, occurred when I was like 21 or 22, and he gave me this problem. This was a, apparently a Bowles Bridge tip from two years earlier or something. So it, he's not claiming it was his problem. But in working out the answer to that problem, I discovered a whole area of the game that I hadn't considered. The psychology or? No, I'll short circuit it all for you. I'll tell you what the answer is. Okay. Right, and, and Catherine's quite right. It's about who discards first. Often, when you're defending, the first card you discard is fairly simple. Have you experienced that? Yeah, sure. But the second discard you have to make is so simple. That's true. So, whoever discards first, you want them to make their second discard before they get to see their partner's first discard. Got it. So let's assume you start off with the ace and then the king and everyone follows and you now lead a card. If you have the ability now to lead a card which you can win either in one hand or the other. So you've got all the top cards. So you lead the 10. Now if left-hand opponent shows out, you win the 10 in your hand and lead the fourth card from your hand, thus making them discard before their partner. But if they follow, you overtake the 10 with the queen, right-hand opponent is now going to have to discard. And now when you lead from dummy, right-hand opponent has to find a second discard before they see their partner's first discard. Now, this is about being a tough opponent. This doesn't enhance what you can do at all. This is just not being easy meat for your opponents. Just putting them in in positions that they're less comfortable with. 
it's not discovering the atom or anything else like that as a as a revelation, but it had a huge impact on me because I realised I hadn't been thinking deeply enough about the game. Given that this whole area, I hadn't thought about until he posed the problem to me. That's terrific. Thank you so much. All right. And that's the show. Thanks to Andrew Mill, Rabina Astley, Catherine Girardo, Dan Graboy, and Theo Hassan. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. But be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And, as Andrew says, if the layout's right, force your opponent to make their second discard before seeing their partner's first discard. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. Bye. (laughs) Bye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.